Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022, six days until Election Day. I am John Fodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, Associate Editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Christine's uh, AEI colleague, uh, and as we all know, uh, uh, director, executive director, head of the Boyden Gray Institute for Boyden of uh, Boydenism at uh, uh, George Mason, uh, Adam White. Hi, Adam. Hi, John. So uh, Adam joins us whenever we have constitutional law issues to discuss, and we have a huge one: uh, the hearing on Monday uh, on the. Two affirmative action cases brought by the students for I can't remember what the whole the whole thing. SF students for fair admissions. Students for fair admissions. Uh, uh, one case against Harvard. One case against uh, UNC. Um, uh, very very important moment. Uh, arguably more important in some ways than the Dobbs decision. But we will we will get to that in a minute. I wanted to do. Just a quick update on everything we talked about yesterday in the Israeli election. The Israeli election took place yesterday, um, and uh, it appears that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has won an unexpected, or the sort of the coalition that he, uh, the right coalition, the Bibi coalition that he would uh, represent, won an unexpectedly large victory. He needs, you need 61 seats to control the Knesset and be prime minister. It looks like his coalition 165 which nobody was predicting um and uh not only that but uh several of the smaller left-wing and arab parties failed to make the threshold of 3.25 percent and are now out of israeli politics at least until the next election uh which gives him a, a much broader field to play on and so that was actually scenario that what's happened is scenario number one yesterday of the five or six scenarios that we laid out and uh it's a staggering comeback for bb who you know not only uh, could not get a 61 seat majority over the course of four previous elections but actually was ousted from power when the anti-bb coalition managed to cobble itself together in this jury rig fashion and lasted i don't know lasted about a year a little more than a year um and so uh he's back and um as a prominent republican texted me this morning uh maybe this is the leading edge of the red wave the person who texted me by the way then pointed out that if you want to look internationally uh and sometimes these things do have an international pattern that the victory of maloney in italy was the first move in this uh, direction of unexpected victories for um for the right uh, in western democracy and now you have bb winning this unexpectedly large uh victory with four more seats than anybody anticipated with the slight possibility that he might bring in a, a, a moderate party uh benny gantz's party to get to 77 seats and thereby dilute a little bit the the nationalist parties in his coalition but you know that's probably too big a stretch but 
so we have we have the question of whether whether the Israeli election represents a leading edge of the red wave that might happen next Tuesday, which is a funny idea. Um, that's number one. Number two, <clears throat> the wave is building. It appears, you know, you just have to look at individual races. And there's now a poll in uh, Nevada has Adam Laxalt up five points at 50%. So that seat is probably in Republican hands and all kinds of stuff going on, right? Okay. But, and then Biden went, so here's the thing. Joe Biden went to Florida yesterday and in the space of three or four hours, particularly at one specific speech, was so uh, off the charts, um, vague and uh, bizarre that the New York Times actually had to do a piece. <clears throat> Peter Baker, their like star correspondent, uh, did a piece uh, with the headline, where is the, sorry, let me find it. Where'd it go? It's something like um, Biden verbally Biden fumbles verbally f- yes. twice during campaign trip to Florida. Yeah. And by the way, it wasn't just twice. twice. <clears throat> it was more than twice. Uh, so the, tw- the, the, the twice was he said, um, uh, he said inflation is a worldwide problem because of the war in Iraq. Uh, then he said, I, I meant the war in Ukraine. Then he said, I think of Iraq because that's where my son died. And uh, Bo Biden did not die die in Iraq. He uh, he served in Iraq. He came back in 2009. He died of brain cancer in 2015. Uh, so he did not die in Iraq. And then there were three or four other things that happened also yesterday. Biden said that he had met the man who invented insulin. Uh, the man who invented insulin. Insulin has been used by diabetics since long before Biden was born. Um, and then he also said that he had gone to a historically black college and university, the University of Western Delaware. I can't remember what the name of the of the HBCU is in Delaware, but he, he didn't go there. He went to the University of Delaware. But I bet he was top of his class in, in every course he took, John. Uh-huh. And another... I think there was one or two others, but this is all one trip to Florida. Um, so uh, You know my theory about this, right? Yes. This is one of the first times that Biden has has had to do a full presidential day schedule in a midterm election year. They rarely take him out of the White House or his beach house in Delaware and put him in a situation where he has to do event after event after event with high, you know, high stakes and a lot of media visibility. And this is probably why he's really not able. They, they, if you look at his schedule, which I, I get the update every day about what the White House, you know, what the president, vice president schedule is. It's this was extremely rare. He doesn't you know, when he has an overseas foreign policy based trip, he sometimes has this many events. Uh, but this is not usually at the level at which he's capable of functioning. And I think it was kind of painfully clear that he wasn't able to function at that level. Um, so it's, you know, it, but the fact that the New York Times has already got the knives drawn discussing this, we, we of course, all off the record had assumed this would start after the Democrats. Not uh, off the record. We talked about it. We oh, talked I guess we October did. 25th, John yeah. said. I will we'll be coming for him. Yes. Well, it's a little early, but there it is. Yeah. They did it a week earlier than I thought. I thought they would have to wait until election day 
Oh, I thought you said what won't be till January that there's going to be this. Oh, right. Sort of- no, you said, Abe, you said the not. I said because election day is the eighth. That's why we should put money the on these predictions. No, 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 John, John, you, you had this, what I thought was the greatest prediction, which was that there would be come January, I think, this sort of um, enormous in-depth piece with a sort of scholarly gloss that, right. you know, the New York Times has consulted uh, X number of, of, of professionals and in, in field of neuroscience and, the, you know, well, it's coming they've, sooner. They've surprised me because yes. basically, I think if, if you want to look at this in some, I don't think anybody sits around plotting this this way. I mean, in fact, I know they don't because I've worked in journalism, but um, uh, they the the wave they're now reconciling themselves to the wave which means that the restraints they might have put on themselves where someone would say i don't think we should do that story about biden on the you know it's like uh, it might have a deleterious effect that we don't want it to have or it might have an effect on the elections and we shouldn't really be doing that you know that kind of thing where they would not they wouldn't say that they were it was a deleterious effect on what they wanted the outcome of the elections to be but um Things are There's so going to be sharper edged re- recriminations. This is just prepping the battle space. Right. But even the stuff that was marginally cogent was foolish, very stupid, just bad politics goes down to the state of Florida, which was for most of my adult life, the swing state. It remains a competitive state. But he goes down there to say, you can't shake a stick without hitting a Republican that represents mega extremes according to a senior Biden advisor. This is why they went down to Florida to highlight what what a catastrophe it is if you're governed by Republicans. Republicans are going to win in Florida. The Republican governor is going to win perhaps even by double digits. Across the board, Democrats are going to lose. You're trying to establish a contrast between what you want and what you say this atrocious you know, effects of, of the uh, opposition are. You look around and you say, well, actually, people actually like this. This is something that people enjoy. You want to establish that kind of a contrast, go somewhere where Republicans aren't especially popular, which is not the state of Florida. Biden also goes on to say, they moaned and groaned. You know, he says, oh, they, they're of the student loan thing. They moaned and groaned about it and they challenged it in court, which is why they're, which they're going to lose. Who the hell do they think they are? He doesn't know if they're going to lose. I'd yeah, be surprised you know, well, I, if they because lost. They, because they're going to win. That's why. They're probably going to win. The idea here, as far as I understood it, was that Republicans challenge us in court, there's an injunction, and then you campaign against Republicans for taking this away from you. The idea is they're going to take it away from you. They can take it away from you. Not that they're going to lose. You need to get up and vote so that you can have this thing that I'm trying to give you. Not that it's in the bag for you. You don't have to worry about it. The communications shop over at the White House is truly bizarre. Um, the capstone yesterday came uh, via the White House's official Twitter account where they wrote the following. Um, seniors are getting the biggest increase in their social security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership. They're quite literally taking actual credit for a COLA increase that has been pegged to the cost of consumer goods for 50 years. But they're right. The assumption, I guess, is that everybody's too ignorant to know that. But I don't think any voters are that low information that they don't know that COLA increases are pegged to inflation and have been for a half century. They are definitely that low information. Well, no, but they wait. but they also no, but it's wait, not a giveaway. Really it's don't. not like they're going to see a huge difference. That will barely cover the the increase that they're paying in inflation if you're on a fixed income. You you guys are missing this. Social this security is a, beneficiaries this is a Bal- know that? This is a Balaam's ass moment, which is to say, or a liar liar moment where 
they opened their mouths and inadvertently spoke a truth they did not want to speak, right? Co cost of living increases are mandated by law, right? So they're getting an 8% cost of living increase because of the inflation rate uh, in July uh, when, when this was set, right? Okay. Cost of living increases. Biden's leadership has led to an 8% automatic cost of living increase because he made the inflationary spiral. This is an admission of guilt. They're trying to say, vote for us because we made inflate. You're, uh, you're, you're on mute, Noah. Sorry, I'm screaming at, into my- You're into screaming on Literally no one, no one's hearing me rail against the universe here. It's one thing to speak an inconvenient truth. It's another thing to write it down, read it and hit send. Um. So no, so we then had this debate on our on our on our text chat last night about I Noah saying people know cost of living increases are automatic. How can they be so low information? And both and Abe just said, of course, they are this low information. And I agree. But as I say, the more I think about it, the more I think it's an astounding thing to say. Do to me, mm -hmm. you're gonna be pay, you're gonna get eight percent more in social security. Because I screwed up the economy is why. I don't want to I, I don't want to move quite past the nonsensical things he said just yet, because here's what I think is interesting about it this time around. There is a sort of sense of resignation uh, among sort of Biden supporters about this stuff. Now, the things he said yesterday are not walk backable. They're not remotely explainable. It's just like, well, he's out there. He's on his own. This is what it is. And it's I think it's a kind of post Fetterman Oz debate uh, uh, sense of this, too. It's like we know what this looks like when you when you go out on a limb and 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 try to pretend something is is other than it is. And we're kind of done with that. It's 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 pretty late in the game to to to, to keep making that effort. Well, and interestingly, the other the person who should be kind of taking up some of the slack because of that situation is the vice president. She's even more unpopular. Nobody wants her showing up. In fact, the first big rally she's doing is, I believe, in New York with Hillary Clinton and Letitia James. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, it, it, I would make a reference to, to witches or something. But like, the, it's a terrible triumvirate of unpopular Democratic women who could only get a crowd in a place like New York or California. And she's extremely bad at that kind of retail politics, too. So it's like the Democrats at the top of their ticket have no spokesperson who's actually charming, engaged, and that voters want to have and that candidates want to have standing next to him on a stage. In uh, on, on Saturday Night Live, on Saturday night, uh, they did a, a horror movie trailer, and the theme of the horror movie trailer was people sitting around watching TV and realizing to their horror that Biden was, in fact, going to run again in 2024, and then saying, well, who else could we get? And then one of them says, Kamala, and his wife punches him in the face. Like, no! And punches him in the face. So I... That's a pretty, it was, it's a, it's quite a brilliant little uh, skit um, film piece. But um, what was striking was how free they felt to turn Kamala into a laughing stock or to reflect the fact that she is a laughing stock, which you could never have predicted in a million years that, that, that liberals would kind of go there. 
Um, no, yeah, John. Adam. Adam White. Speak. <laughs> Just so the Speak audience truth, knows. Adam. You know, one of the best parts about being a guest on the show is you get to be the live studio audience for the conversation. And uh, so thank you for that, John. I just want to say I, this is not my usual lane, but, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what House Republicans might do if they win in November. Um, and a lot of it is sort of just replaying what House Democrats did to the Trump administration. Oversight hearings. Yeah, there's going to be resolutions on impeachment. Yeah, all of that. Um, their own kind of maybe... January 6th commission, who knows. But one thing I think now we have to anticipate is a, a run back of the 25th Amendment debates. You'll see House oversight hearings about whether uh, the administration's leaders need to invoke the 25th Amendment against President Biden based on incapacity to perform his office. And they'll be able to hammer in these hearings, not just all the points about Biden's, you know, gaffes, but this last point, right, about, well, you know, do we, would it be better for Kamala Harris to be running the administration? I, I think that's going to be a real sleeper issue for the next uh, two years in Congress is going to be constant, not constant, but common talk about the 25th Amendment just to get both the Biden gaffe issues and the Harris on popularity issues all together in one hearing. And the cherry on top is that it's what Democrats were saying about Trump for the last, you know, four years. It's not your lane, but that was great. That was some, that was some great uh, predictive punditry. And I'm uh, proud to have you on to share it with, with us. Cause not only do I think you're right, but we also have the phenomenon um, that uh, Trump is likely to declare his uh, his candidacy for the presidency at some point in the next month to six weeks, uh, according to all kinds of people. And so we are just going to be back in this spiral of talking about Biden and Trump and Trump and Biden. And will Trump get indicted? Is Biden senile? Is Trump senile? Is Biden going to be indicted? Is Hunter going to be indicted? Is Biden... Uh, make it gonna, stop. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's not going to stop. This is our life. So get prepared. We had a nice little interregnum here with the midterms where we had other people to talk about and other candidacies to talk about and other things happening. And then, you know, then Trump popped up and suddenly he was in the midterms and then it all faded. And now we're well, going to have but everyone, sorry, the, yeah. everyone should go look at the ad that Ron DeSantis' campaign cut for this recent, for this race. Uh, uh, Keep Florida free. Very good, very optimistic, very basic message. It's an excellent ad. I am hoping that it won't be a replay of, you know, Biden versus Trump, that there will be more players. I think there are also I think uh, there'll be more players on the left, too, because there are a lot of people who oh. are annoyed with Biden and Harris right now who want power themselves. So maybe it will get mixed up a little. I'm hoping because nobody, nobody wants to go back to that 2020 election. By the way, it's the same rule as always as is always in play in these sorts of circumstances, which is. Other people are going to run against Biden because you just never know. You never know, you know, he could fall and split his head open. He could, he's 80 years, he'll be 80 years old in like a week. You never know. And he might really, even if he announces he's running again, <clears throat> there's a whole year <clears throat> in which things could happen. And of course, you know, not that there's any analogy really here, but Johnson was the sitting president. He won, you know, the largest landslide in American history. And, uh, you know, Gene McCarthy decided to run against him. 
and uh, and took him out uh, in one state. Uh, and so that was actually an actual. So you know, you you just don't know. No one is no one is going to let Biden walk. No Democrats or Democratic Party is not in the end going to let Biden walk into a renomination. Uh, which, by the way, is really also a bad sign. But Trump is the one person that Biden, even in in, in capacity, could probably beat. So I don't know what's going to go on. Anyway, before we before we get to discussing uh, this incredibly important affirmative action case or cases, uh, just you want to be prepared for a beautiful holiday season, which you know, uh, as we all know we all need desperately after this year of politics and inflation. And uh, one of the best ways to do it is to get yourself or get your friends as presents or your family members as presents, bowl and branch sheets. So you can get your best sleep every night during this most exciting time of the year. The softest, most luxurious organic cotton sheets from bowl and branch made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on earth. They make a difference you can truly feel. Uh, they are free from toxins, pesticides, and harsh chemicals. They're made by artisans who earn the pay and respect they deserve. Designs for every color, uh, designs and colors, every bathroom, bedroom style, and mattress size uh, with an unmatched softness. And Noah, what happens when you wash those sheets that you sleep on? They come out clean, but more than that, they're actually softer. They're softer and lighter and fluffier and li- literally no joke came out of the wash on Sunday and I had hit the pillow and I'm just out it's, and woke up the next day feeling very refreshed and literally said to my wife that uh, bestowed praise on these on these sheets. I forget exactly what I said, but it was something to the effect of these sheets are great. Literally, so look, no joke. If you if you want to do your your family, your loved ones a solid, consider the signature gift box from Bolin Branch with the signature sheets wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box. Your gifts will look as special as they feel. Bring home a better night's sleep this holiday season with Bolin Branch bedding. For a limited time, get 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code commentary at B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. That's com promo code commentary. Adam White three hours uh of oral argument uh almost unprecedented for for, uh, for this to be the case in these two different cases being brought by again remind me of the name of the um it's students for fair admissions students for fair admissions uh students for fair admissions brought the case against harvard on the grounds of uh, active and unconstitutional discrimination against Asian Americans and a slightly different angle on the University of of North Carolina, since that is a state school uh, and therefore is under different constitutional requirements than a private institution like Harvard. Um, The general headline is that the justices appear ready uh, to to end the now 44-year Supreme Court precedent that it is it is uh, race can be used as a factor 
in admissions, the cases that preceded this, preceded the Harvard case, have all involved state schools because, because people have constitutional rights as citizens if they attend state schools. And therefore, the state schools have to hew to, um, you know, the 14th Amendment, various, they have to free speech, whatever you want, all, all the kind of regulations. Harvard as a private institution can pretty much do as it wishes, except for the fact that it takes federal money. Um, and therefore uh, may may can be sued on the grounds that um, it has to follow federal contracting uh, rules that you know do do not you know that require institutions to follow some of the same uh, principles and practices here. So, Adam, give us a sense of what happened on Monday in this three hour. You know, John, you said something at the beginning of the podcast, you said, you know, this case seems huge, maybe even bigger than um, the Dobbs abortion case. And, you know, of course, the Dobbs case was the one that's been or Roe, I guess, has been at the center of the court's debates about everything for the last several decades. But I was thinking about what you said, and, and I think that's actually exactly right. Maybe not that it's bigger than Dobbs, but reading the transcripts, listening to oral arguments, you realize that this case, the set of cases um, the North Carolina Harvard cases are kind of the everything cases. Um, here's what I mean by that. The court, the justices, the litigants, they talked, of course, about the Constitution and also the meaning of the Civil Rights Act and the weight of precedent, right? The usual, those you you know obvious issues. And of course, then also there was a lot of talk about race, right? How America understood race in our own time, how we understand it in our own time um, and how we understood it in the in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. We also, the justices and litigants also debated, talked about universities, right? Their inner workings. So much of the oral arguments are these sort of foggy conversations about what exactly is even happening in these cases. Is our admissions officers at these universities using race as a deciding factor very often? Is it just sort of an ambiguous consideration? What does any of that mean? So we're debating, the, the university's inner workings at a time when universities themselves are, are, are increasingly controversial, um, but also increasingly important. We, they also debated the role of universities in our society. Justice Kagan talked about universities being the pipeline to leadership in America, to, to, to both in government and in the private sector. So, so much about universities. And then finally and subtly, there was a lot of discussion about the courts themselves, the Supreme Court's practical power to supervise what's really happening, either in, in the universities or in the lower courts. And then on that other point, there's really interesting, you know, subtle debates along the way about what the trial courts found, what was the record in the trial courts. And that's going to be a huge issue in the years ahead when the conservatives are the majority of the Supreme Court. One of the running themes in coming years is going to be trial judges, federal district judges, making elaborate factual findings to really try to pin in the Roberts court on legal issues. So just I wanted to put that all on the table. Obviously, we know the big issues in this case, and it's what we'll mostly be talking about. But this case, this pair of cases became, in some ways, the everything cases. So this, this everything case here gets to the fundamental uh, issue of fairness. And generally speaking, 
conservative jurisprudence, broadly defined, politically, ideologically, is not about fairness, yeah. right? It's mostly right. about procedure and 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 following the law and not stretching the law to its to illegitimate ends. But in yeah. this case, this is about fairness, and it plays a very in the Harvard case. It's it's almost open and shut unless you want to say the federal government has no place in trying to judge what goes on inside a private institution. Yeah, because the evidence that was uncovered by uh, uh, by the Asian Americans is of an institution that is systematically discriminating against Asian Americans. Yeah, they're given lower scores on this very peculiar. Uh, internal measure of whether or not an individual candidate will be a good fit for the institution's interests in terms of the kind of person that it wants to send into the world. And um, uh, and there is a, Asians were scored systematically lower than anybody else in an effort to mean to make it necessary for them to score wildly higher, even in things that they already do better on, like standardized testing and grades, even to get a shot. So that is a fairness question, and that's unusual. However, there is also the simple fact, getting back to conservative jurisprudence, that ultimately the argument against affirmative action is not affirmative action as it was understood originally when it, the term was used in some sense in the Civil Rights Act of um, 1964, yeah. which is to say it is okay to take every aggressive measure that you possibly can to uh, open opportunities to, you know, in that, that way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it takes a willing suspension of disbelief to not see that Asian Americans especially are suffering profound, profoundly terrible discrimination, racial discrimination in university admissions. There's just no way around that. And anybody can see it with their own eyes, but the, the record in the Harvard case really putting out for public display how admissions officers actually were approaching uh, Asian American applicants makes this totally clear. So it's it's you cannot avoid this. You have to go out of your way to avoid this. You also have to go out of your way to not recognize that this is a replay of discrimination a, a century ago or less against uh, Jews who wanted to get into Harvard or other mm -hmm. major universities. Also, the discrimination the Chinese and others suffered. Uh, a century ago or more, um, trying to come to the United States, I was. Uh, it's astonishing to see how hard people will work to avoid uh, conceding those two stubborn and awful sets of facts. This, um, this that's was, all true. The so to your earlier point, actually, about how they the the citing of facts of the lower court case. This really angered me. So Seth Waxman made this kind of obnoxious remark about Seth oh, you're Waxman entitled was to the it was the uh, arguer. He was arguing former for solicitor Harvard. general who's yes. arguing for Harvard. Yeah. Former solicitor general has appeared before the court many many times. Really, you know, well known uh, Supreme Court litigator representing Harvard. He said, "Oh, you're entitled to your opinion, but not your facts." And the lower court found no evidence that they they were using race as a factor. Well, the I. I spent some time studying that that district court opinion and the judge who uh, Burroughs who who uh, issued it 
uh, was relying, for example, one of the things she frequently cited was the Karana Committee, which was formed at Harvard by a Harvard college dean, which, which you know, surprisingly enough, found that Harvard wasn't using race in, in this ineffective way. She claimed that that you know that race wasn't a factor in terms of measuring the ability of which students got in. Oh, they all have to meet these really rigorous qualifications. Completely false, and we know this from the data that's been since revealed in the current case. So this this idea that there are no there's no factual basis is completely ridiculous. I mean, just, just to give one example, if you're in the very lowest decile as, a, as an Asian American applicant to Harvard, you have zero chance of getting into Harvard. I mean, less than 1%. If you're in that same exact decile as an African American applicant, you're definitely going to get in. That right there is an example. And, and to Adam's point, the history of how Harvard has discriminated against certain racial and ethnic groups must be part of this discussion. It was horrifying when they did it in the 1920s with Jewish students, and it is horrifying when they're doing it now to Asian American students. It's wrong. It's just wrong. And the fact that they're trying to you know, kind of rewrite the history at the same time that they're saying, oh, it's all for diversity. It's ridiculous. Um, I also want to add, Adam mentions the, the extraordinary lengths that one has to go to to sort of deny the reality of this. What's also amazing are the extraordinary lengths that Harvard and other universities go to in order to institute this policy of discrimination because they can't do it, <clears throat> excuse me, overtly. So they have to come up with the system that 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 camouflages what's going on. Uh, namely, but not exclusively, this sort of personal rating system where, where that, that allows uh, uh, administrators to give, person, give applicants, individual applicants, a lower sort of personal rating without saying what, what that is about. Um, when all that becomes exposed, it's going to be a very ugly reality that, that everyone's... I mean, it's, it's, it's exposed already to those who have been looking into it. But this is this is going to be one of those things that's going to open up and be a really revolting uh, uh, discovery for a lot of people. The district court, as Samuel Alito said, in the course of a really interesting conflict with Seth Waxman, Alito quotes the district court case, which remember the district court found for Harvard, and yet the district court said. There was a statistically significant and negative relationship between Asian American identity and the personal rating assigned by Harvard admissions officers. And Alito then said, if you don't use it, because essentially Waxman had to say that the personal rating system didn't have a huge effect on, on, how, they, on how they chose their classes. If you don't use it, why do you have it? What is the explanation for that? Why do you have it if you don't use it? And Waxman could not answer the question. Kind of, uh, per, kind of prevaricated or like wandered around the question because of course he can't lie before the Supreme Court. Like, um, and so it's a fascinating moment because they have this system the court, district court and the case exposed the existence of this personality score system and showed that there was systematic discrimination. Harvard's only case, there are two possibilities in Harvard's case. Number one, the federal government has no place in this period. 
It's not a public institution. Students don't have, you know, constitutional rights. They can do whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, the other is that they don't use racism. They don't, they don't use race negatively as a factor or ethnic identity as a factor. Uh, because if they do, then obviously they're so, uh, and they can't say either, as far as I can tell. Justice Alito is so good at this, by the way, in the New York gun cases, you know, there these, this pair of cases, one after another, went to the Supreme Court on New York's gun licensing. Um, and there was a brief moment where New York had to change its gun laws to avoid judicial review the first time. When the case came back the second time, Alito asked the lawyers, um, I think it was the second time, he said, well, since the law has changed, uh, is New York less safe? Um, because you had to change the gun laws to avoid judicial review. Maybe that was in the first case at oral argument. And the lawyer couldn't answer it. And this is my favorite moments at oral argument, almost always Alito uh, BS detector moments. He's so, so good at calling at shining a spotlight on these, these inconsistencies. If he were a, a millennial, he would have told Seth Waxman that you're gaslighting me. Because that's it's, it's fascinating to watch this the debates around the court and debates inside the court. As you said, John, on the one hand, these affirmative action programs, these racial distinctions are so incredibly important that it would be a travesty for the Supreme Court to disallow them. On the other hand, um, they don't actually mean anything. Nobody, nobody's race is ever determinative in these decisions. You can't have both of these things at once, uh, yet the advocates for these programs, these racial discrimination programs, insist upon it. So uh, that's the Harvard case. So the, U the UNC case is a little different, which is why there are two different cases. Yeah, and, and real specifically, again, John, you said Harvard, since it's not a state institution, it's treated differently. The Harvard case is, is about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on account of one's race. And in many ways, I think that's the more straightforward legal issue because it's a much more recent law, the 1960s versus the, the 1800s. Uh, it's, uh, it's crystal clear discrimination on the basis of race is disallowed. It's hard for me to see how Harvard wins that case if the, if the court just applies the plain meaning of the Civil Rights Act. Um, the state case, the UNC, they are governed first and foremost by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which prohibits or which requires that all states give equal protection of the laws. So a lot of the UNC case really is wrapped up in what did the post-Civil War Congress that wrote the 14th Amendment mean by equal protection of the laws, especially in light of the fact that that same Congress or Congresses of that era had, the, had created the Freedmen's Bureau to really re help to remedy the, uh, the, the evils that were perpetuated against Blacks uh, in, in slave states. Um, that was a, you know, in many ways, the original affirmative action program. And I don't think, I don't think any of the justices would say that that was unconstitutional because it wasn't unconstitutional. But then it is hard to grapple with what that history means uh, a century and a half later uh, when people today at universities and their supporters say we still need to remedy racial discrimination in our own time. Uh, I, I think that that ultimately the university is going to lose that case, but I do think it's in some ways a, a harder, more nuanced case than the, the than the Harvard Civil Rights Act case. Um, I do, do. I think I mentioned this the other day, but I just want to cite our own Christine Rosen because she was implicitly mentioned in this in this argument uh, when Seth Waxman 
uh, Christine, as uh, she has occasionally uh, uh, told us, uh, uh, basically because I force her to. Bassoon, um, not oboe, though. My delightful your, sister Cindy your plays oboe. Your sister is an oboe player. Yes, and you but are I'm a bassoonist. Okay. We're all double reads. So it's the, just right, the same so the, crazy family group. Yeah. The Stolba family <laughs> uh, got to college uh, with um, music scholarships. That's right. For double right. read instruments. And uh, Waxman said, you know, that... Um, uh, that race can be a factor, quote, for some highly qualified applicants at Harvard. Just as, quote, being, you know, an oboe player in a year in which the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra needs an oboe player can determine admission. Awesome response then, by Chief Justice out of nowhere, this one. Yeah. <laughs> out of nowhere, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts comes in and says, we did not fight a civil war about oboe players. We did fight a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. So when you get into this point where it's like, well, you know, it's really like we're just, you know, we need we need an oboe player. We need a we need a, you know, we need but a black person the way we need an oboe player. And it's like, okay, but this is a zero sum game. You let in one person, it means you're not letting in another person. If you use a standard that the other person cannot possibly reach or as is really the case in Harvard's case, you literally um, Harrison Bergeron, the Asian American, you put shackles around their heads and you, you know, you, you make them walk around uh, with uh, dis, you know, with disadvantage in order to correct for the thing that would make but them highly qualified this but this is the little this is the dirty little secret about elite institutional use of affirmative action and support of it by by uh, progressive and largely white people <laughs> they don't want to see any preferences fall because they are currently the ones benefiting from alumni preference from i'm rich and can throw money at an institution i want to get my kids into preference i personally think all of them should be abolished i don't think you should get a legacy preference i don't think you should have by giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to an institution that should grease the the wheels for your kids to get in, I'm I'm opposed to all of those preferences. But there's a there's a there's a weird sort of subtext to the support for affirmative action that's like, well, if they take that, then maybe my you know sort of mediocre kid who's who I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars sending to private school so that they're on the path to get into Harvard because I went to Harvard, maybe they their preference might be threatened, and no no one on the left wants to see those preferences um, eliminated because for them that's where Kagan was absolutely spot on. This is the this is the path to elite power in this country. If you look at the people who get the clerkships, you look at the people who are running the government, they are going to a handful of schools. They are matriculating from those schools and they want their kids to go to those schools. It's also a big um, it's, it's a big sort of liberal hypocrisy issue for um, people who are not necessarily 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 legacy uh, Ivy Leaguers or anything like that. But um, <clears throat> to a lot of liberal parents uh, whose kids are, are are going to school, about to go to applying the whole process, and they're they have all their liberal credentials in order. But when they when you start talking to them about about their kids, I'm talking about white liberal parents, <clears throat> their kids' prospects of getting in, they start complaining. Well, she has very little shot because or she's she's going to be. Uh, uh, moved against because uh, she's not a minority and this and that, and that's unfair. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly who objects and in what fora. 
we're all sort of assuming that we get a pretty clean ruling out of the court here. And I think it's a pretty fair assumption. But I mean, they, when it comes to race and race preferences, the court has been relatively deferential to the legislature. I mean, in the Bollinger decision, uh, which is the original affirmative action decision, O'Connor said, you know, in 25 years, we're not going to need this anymore, which is bizarre jurisprudence, but nevertheless. But it's sort of a, of a piece with the the rulings that preceded the striking down of uh, the Voting Rights Act, I think Section 4, uh, where there were several rulings preceding that said Congress needs to update this, Congress needs to update the map, Congress needs to update uh, the criterion that we use uh, to make these decisions, and they never did. So eventually they came down. Now, probably expect that we're going to get a VRA-esque ruling, even though that was kind of splitting the baby well, here. But to what well, degree do we expect a, quote, clean ruling out of this court? O'Connor's sentence that you mentioned is the time bomb in this entire uh, was it time but it was very very much the, the the VRA decision. It didn't didn't no, but, say, look, Congress, you have to do something now, okay. but you have to do something soon, or we're going to have to okay. do it for you. That was 19 years ago. O'Connor said essentially, this this policy of affirmative action should not exist a quarter century from now. And in oral argument, the justices tested both Solicitor General. Um, Elizabeth Prelegar and Seth Waxman and said basically O'Connor in our jurisprudence in the said there needs to be a time at which affirmative action will end as a policy because it is an exception it's a weird kind of exception to constitute to the civil rights act right it's some kind of like we've we've established this carve out but the carve out can't be perpetual. And Waxman and Prelogar both said, no, no, there is going to be an end date. There is an end date. It's just not now. And that is a devastating argument for them. Not because the only justification for the policy that discriminates against people, which it does, is to say we there is a compelling interest in diversity for its own sake. And diversity for its own sake should be perpetual. People learn better when they're in a diverse class. The society has a compelling interest in having its elites uh, you know, proportionally representative of the of the of the nation as a whole. But they can't make that argument because it's in fact unconstitutional. And it goes against not only the spirit, but the letter of the law, the Civil Rights Act, and the 14th Amendment, right? So these are the two things that are going on here. And they were walked into this trap by Thomas and by Alito, I think. I think it was the two of them yeah. that Chief really Justice, pushed this. Yeah, Chief, I mean, Chief Justice Roberts, who's always been a strong voice on these issues, he was you know, pushing this here, too. It is, in, <clears throat> it is interesting how, in this case, for all the talk about we need to maintain the Grutter precedent, uh, nobody actually wants to maintain the entire Grutter precedent, right, because of this, 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 this point with Justice O'Connor in the 25 years. Uh, just to explain where this comes from, for the constitutional issue, and this is an area where, where the affirmative action cases do stick out like a real sore thumb in the rest of the court's jurisprudence, but racial discrimination uh, in state laws is subject to what we call strict scrutiny. The state has to have the best possible justification for the need for this program. 
um, and has to be able to show that there's no less discriminatory way to do this. That is a real fact-sensitive analysis. And that's not just exclusive to racial to, to, to race-based affirmative action and college admissions. This is in all aspects of state discriminations on the basis of race, the selection or exclusion of jurors or anything else that the state does that draws lines on the basis of race is subject to, they say it's, 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 the scrutiny is strict in theory and fatal in fact, um, because it, you, the state can almost never prevail. So what the justices are doing here is really forcing the litigants that the University of North Carolina and, and North Carolina Solicitor General uh, Ryan Park was really raked over the coals on this too, um, to explain why in the here and now, this still survives strict scrutiny. And you know, one can say that 25 or 18, what, what was it, 19 years ago, 18 years ago, maybe the analysis was different because we were two decades closer to the uh, to the to the the effects of Jim Crow, um, it wasn't the 2000 wasn't that much after 1964 in the big scheme of things, but we are now almost another quarter century down the road, and in that quarter century, the wind has constantly been in the sails of 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 giving uh, blacks and Hispanics uh, a boost in admissions. And so this is a case where the conservatives are not just arguing the law, but like you said, John, they're arguing the facts too. Um, and it's they're both moving in the same direction here. Okay, so Even let's assume a clean ruling. Yeah. Now, Adam, I want to take you back out of your lane into politics. We have a clean ruling. <clears throat> Affirmative action is unconstitutional, illegal, not unconstitutional, illegal, because yeah. um, it violates the VRA. And what do Democrats say? We were just privy to a very... Um, heavy-handed lecture about what the court does to itself when it mm -hmm. goes against public opinion in the way that it did in the Dobbs decision. Racial discrimination is extraordinarily unpopular. Yeah. What are Democrats going to say? We need a constitutional amendment to codify racial discrimination in the Constitution? No, I mean, um, seriously, what are they going, what is the what is the remedy to this when they say this is a bad decision, we need to do X? Yeah, I mean, uh, to quote my favorite lawyer, Lionel Hutz, uh, that's why you're the political judge and I'm the law talking guy. I mean, I, I don't really know, um, but I will say the Dobbs case is instructive here. At the end of the day, the court said, we're just going to cut through this knot. There's lots of questions out there about what happens when the mother's life is in danger, when her health is in danger. So on. We're just going to decide this big issue now and let things play out. And I, I think that's what's going to happen here. Like you said, I think we'll get a clean, we'll get a pretty clean cut ruling. There's going to be a lot of messy details. And frankly, I think the universities are still going to manage to get a lot of this in under cover of, of you know, bureaucratic language and the fog of the admissions process. Um, but but I think the court's going to come through with a clear ruling. They'll let, the, they'll let all that sort itself out in uh, cases to come. Um, but to actually answer your question, Noah, it is hard for me to see what Democrats will do in response to this, other than to say um, this is the latest racist decision by an illegitimate Supreme Court, uh, and we this is the, the the awful legacy of President Trump and Mitch McConnell, and you need to elect us to save the court on all these other issues you actually like better than racial discrimination in the law. So here's what's interesting: uh, affirmative action was a broad based quotas really uh not affirmative action but quotas was a were brought were pursued in a broad-based way in the late 1960s through the early 1980s 
And in the case of actual employment of people, particularly at the at the uh, employees of states, the federal government, and localities, affirmative action was flatly removed by courts. In other words, you could not game, you could not change, you could not hire a less qualified fireman. Two people take a fireman test. I mean, this is there. There is this is an actual case, right? Two people take a fireman test. Somebody gets a lower grade on the fireman test, but is black. That person is hired, and the person with the higher test isn't. That was done. That is states are, you know, public employee. That cannot be an approach in public employment in the United States. One of the reasons why that did not become controversial is that 90% of the American people believed that the quota system for stuff like that was insane. Particularly, that's why the fireman case was such a good case, right? And that's actually also, there's a sex discrimination angle to that too. Like when you're talking about public safety, you want the best qualified person, period. And the best qualified person is the person you have a test and they score on the test and you, okay. So affirmative action was in fact paired back. Uh, it was on the march and it was paired back. A, it was unpopular and B, the it was plainly true that people were being denied employment on the basis of their race because they were white. And that was deemed illegitimate. So it's only in these weird areas in particular in college admissions, that you have, because of course a law firm can hire whoever it wants to hire. Now, if you could prove that they were doing this in a discriminatory fashion, you could sue them and get, but you can't really ever prove that because it's like a co-op board. You know, you don't know what's going on in the internal workings and you can't find out. But, and why would anybody want to work there anyway? If it was whatever, it doesn't matter. So the affirmative action thing is, is one of the few places in which uh, it appears that race is used as a factor in this way, and sometimes the determining factor. Um, Democrats would be insane to go whole hog with the idea that this decision that may come is illegitimate and needs to be reversed. Liberals, liberal pundits, elite thinkers, op-ed pages, all of that, are all going to go very hard with this. And my view is, outside of 20 or 25 uh, people, you know, in, in certain places in the House, and maybe a couple people in the Senate, they will stay away from this like it's poison. It's just, it's a seven... It's a 70% issue. You say to people, should race be used as a factor in whether, you know, is it fair for somebody to get a this uh, because that, they're black or white? Um, Democrats would be crazy to go hard on this because what demographic are, are Democrats losing like crazy among others? Suburban women. Yeah. Um, they, they don't. They don't want to see this. They, I mean, this is, you know, they, they, they don't want uh, racial preferences in place. I, I agree that the liberal pundits will go hard on it, but they don't have to make any specific coherent argument. No. For them, it is part of this almost cinematic 
threat of fascism that is that's that's coming but their that, argument is the diversity argument which is fine i mean it's a it's a legitimate argument to say that diversity is such a compelling thing that we need to we need to um you know favor diversity over fairness in this one area in particular because this is a larger fairness or something like that it's just against the just against the law well, it's also uh, against change, people's experience. Law, which, yeah. I, I don't. Yeah, it's a, diversity in these cases is a zero sum game. And I think in areas where they're like, oh, diversity is good. Everyone has this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling about diversity. A, do we have proof that diversity is better for people? No, there's a lot of weird like I would like to see this the long term studies that this is actually a beneficial good for the people who are chosen. And then we have the real world experience, which is most of these kids are all selected from the upper middle class and upper class elite, regardless of their race. The people That's getting into Harvard important. are not economically, socioeconomically uh, challenged. And the ones who they're taking who are who are are often children of African immigrants, not necessarily African-Americans who, who are living through the legacy of slavery. So there's so much that's kind of manipulated here to get this kind of hazy view of diversity. I don't think people buy it. It's wild. As Noah said, it's really unpopular. Affirmative action preferences are unpopular. People, even California voted against them recently. I mean, this is not something people think is fair. But this is your suburban women point, which yes. is that suburban women have children and they have children who are going to college and uh, they don't like that it's not fair. Now, you could have a world in which there is a positive revolution that emerges from this, right? So Adam says they're going to say, let the chips fall where they may. Well, the chips may fall in the end of legacy admissions uh, because you then... Good. Allow, I, I think that would be great. <laughs> right. So you then allow the admissions office another, you know, 35% of the class at Harvard is legacy. You end legacy admissions, you got 35% more slots that you can, you could actually literally have every Asian and then do diversity and just not favor legacy. They like legacy. It's weird because Harvard already has $42 billion in its, you know, in its hedge fund. Like, I don't know why it needs legacy just to keep the donations rolling. And they don't, they, they, they could never take in another dollar. They could run for another hundred years on what's in that, in that fund. Because it's also an elite pipeline. It's not just about the money. It's about right. keeping locked down a particular right. kind of elite pipeline that right. they do not want to blow up right now. Right. But anyway, so diversity, so there there are all kinds of things that could happen. But I want to point out one final thing, which is the 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 insane hypocrisy that attaches or the or the rhetoric, the insane rhetoric that attaches to some of this when people argue it. The Solicitor General of the United States is Elizabeth Prelogar. Um she said we have a real problem with diversity and that also is gender diversity. Most of the people who are admitted to the Supreme court court bar, those people who can argue before the Supreme court are male. Uh, how, how can we possibly allow, how can a young woman look at a court that is, you know, the court that, exists and after this decision and say i could be one of the people arguing before this court says elizabeth prelegar elizabeth prelegar is a woman 
arguing before the Supreme Court as the Solicitor General of the United States. It's a Rube Goldberg argument. She herself is the refutation of her own argument. Also, women have been the majority for... of college and uh, graduate school and professional school graduates for more than a for decades. Right. Like this idea yeah. that women are somehow women yeah. are the ones succeeding at college, not men by like 60, yeah. 40 on some campuses is the gender yeah. ratio. So that's just completely ridiculous. There is Seth Waxman arguing for Harvard. Seth Waxman is Jewish. Under the same rules as 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 a very beautifully detailed, there's a new target Target, sorry. Target, of course, the store. Tablet podcast about discrimination against Jews in college admissions that everybody should go listen to. Uh, there's Jerome Carabell's book, The Chosen, which is about admissions at Ivy League institutions. Seth Waxman, if Seth Waxman were 80 years old, he would have had a lot of trouble getting into Harvard because they had a 15% quota. He is standing there as a Jew benefiting from the collapse of the quota system, arguing in favor of discrimination against Asian Americans, self-refuting, aside from being a uh, I mean, okay, so lawyers can argue whatever. Lawyers, everyone deserves the best argument. Just a little shameful. I'm sorry. And by the way, a lot of people, this is an interesting corruption thing I want to mention. So I was thinking about this because like in 1978, when the Backey case came down, Jewish organizations and Jews all over the country were very much on the side of Backey on the grounds that he had been denied admission to the University of California at Davis Medical School on the basis of his of his color. And uh, Jews were Jews who had vivid memories in their own generation of actual quotas at major schools, Jewish organizations came out in force in on behalf of Baki and against uh, the argument that that it was okay that he, having scored the same as a racial minority, uh, the racial minority should get the slot. So it's now forty years later. I don't think any Jewish organization outside of uh, the, I mean, any. Any of the big ones have come in for the Asian American side in the Harvard case. Why? Because the quotas fell, and it's now three generations since the quotas fell. And of those legacies, right, the, Harvard went from being 15% Jewish to 40% Jewish in a matter of a couple of years. Those legacies, 60 years later, a lot of them are Jews. And they are benefiting from the legacy system. Their grandchildren are going to Harvard because they went to Harvard and their kids went to Harvard. That's the corruption that is involved when you start putting fingers on the scale and hands on the scale and weighing things without benefit of the notion that there's the only way to do this stuff is fairly and blindly because there'll always be tricks and cheats. But so you end up basically corrupting a class of people who who now benefit from the very thing that punished them and i think it's a very it's a it's a bad sign about the health of my own community here that it's gone that it's that it's that it's gone this way adam just to just to conclude so we have these two cases we will get decisions i guess in may or june probably right it's 
Well, yeah, but it, it is possible that we'll get decisions before that. And this case was argued so early that it, I wouldn't be shocked if we got a right. case earlier in the spring. Right. Oh, one last thing. Where do you come down on this? Because it's a very interesting, totally sidelight, which is that Sonia Sotomayor, one of the three liberal justices who was defending the basically in defense of the of the of the diversity standard, let's say. Um, three different times referred to de jure segregation. Um, and I do you think she meant de jure segregation or did she mean de facto segregation and either didn't know the difference or got herself twisted up in her own tongue? Because she actually meant de facto segregation, which of course is just segregation as a matter, not of law, but of custom or of whatever. And then de jure segregation is what is actually in the law. And of course, there is no de jure segregation in the United States. Yeah. Well, yeah, she she clearly was referring to de facto segregation. She kept saying de jure. Uh, there were a lot of issues in play over hours of oral argument. And so, you know, heck, I probably missed, missed, uh, used the wrong word five times in an hour long podcast just now. So I, I don't, I don't put, I don't think about it too much. Oh, such generosity of spirit. That's really great. Okay. Thank you very much. Very illuminating conversation. Uh, we will thank you, Adam White of the Boyden Center for Boyden. I make this joke, I should explain, because I worked with Adam's, um, with the uh, with the eponymous uh, figure of his um, uh, of his uh, institution of his institute uh, in the Reagan White House, and he was one of my favorite people. And so I do this with with love, not with. C. Boyden Gray, who was uh, who was in the White House Counsel's office, and then was White House Counsel to President George H. W. Bush, and just a lovely guy and a terrific person. And he's a great American, yes, but also really nice and like just just lovely. So that's that's why I do this. I do it out of love, but it sounds maybe a little dismissive. So I I want you to say the full name because I can yes. Well, do you have a minute? Because here it goes. Uh, yes. It is the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School uh, with special guests. No, just kidding. <laughs> that's great. That's like that's like the type. There was a play called, it ended up being called Marat Saad, uh, which was a big, big thing in the 1960s. The title of which was actually The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as Performed by the Inmates at the asylum at Sheraton overseen by the Marquis de Sade. Uh, a great play uh, directed by the great Peter Brook. Anyway, so you, that's a, your yours is even better than Marat Saad. You need to call it then Boyden slash uh, Mason or something like that, or Boyden slash Scalia slash Mason. We call it the Gray Center everywhere, but on this podcast. There we go, the Gray Center. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, Adam and um, I'm sure we will we will be hearing from you again as uh, as we try to un, as as the unraveling of of uh, of 50 years of jurisprudence continues apace at the Supreme Court and for Noah and Abe and Christina I'm John Podhoritz keep the candle burning.